0: listening to sermons from South Point McDonough where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org I'm not somebody who has a whole lot of Nightmares, at least ones that I really remember. But everybody else in my family does. And the reason I know that is because I'm up later than them, and I get to hear all of them. So I get to hear my kids talking, uh, coming in there crying. Uh, anytime I move around next to my wife, she wakes up either talking about like oatmeal or something random, or else worried that somebody's going to break into the house or that I forgot to turn the alarm on. Um, but everybody, even the dog, you know, the dog will be having horrible nightmares, Uh, but I'm not one that normally has a whole lot of nightmares, but maybe a, a month or two ago, I had this nightmare. Maybe you've had an experience like this before, but it was unlike any kind of nightmare that I've ever had before. It was very realistic. It was the kind that, uh, I remembered afterwards in great detail, it uh, left me kind of scared for a couple days, the kind that I had to have a long, couple long talks with my wife just about what it was about and what I was thinking and what was going on in my brain. So I don't know if you've had experiences like that before, but it can be pretty scary. And, and honestly, the fear that's there is is not, it's like, it's like a, a fear of not a something real, but it just—it's like you can't. It's like something that came in through this experience that you really can't put your finger on and really can't explain. I could lay out the details of the whole thing to you, and it wouldn't—it wouldn't make any sense to anybody else, even your spouse. But to you who experienced it, you. You feel it, you probably have some things and sometimes you can look back and you still can feel that feeling of that kind of unexplained like dread and terror that comes upon you in some of those moments. What well, we see in Daniel, we're in this period of time where he has these very real visions and his are probably even more, definitely more intense than a lot of ours would be because unlike me, where it's probably just coming from some strange place in my subconscious, for him, it's coming from God. These visions at night that he's having are literally coming from the Lord. But you may have had a, also a similar experience to having something like a waking nightmare. Okay, so uh, I had a, an experience like this this past week when I was I was getting ready for the sermon. Uh, and what I normally do when I'm going to be preaching for that week is my a lot of my time that I spend in the mornings uh, will be spent just trying to, to pour over like the passage and some sources, but this morning, um, as it does a lot of times, my phone kind of caught my eye for a second. I'm like, well, let me check what the weather's going to be. Uh, and then obviously there's like a little tweet notification on there. And it's like, oh, well, I wonder what so-and-so's saying. It looks like something really obnoxious. So let me check, let me check in on that real quick. And then, you know, 30 or 45 minutes later, you find that you've just gone down this like text stream or this uh, tweet stream, where it's like, well, now for the past thirty minutes, I've seen. Uh, it, I actually kind of imagine like if C.S. Lewis was writing Screw Tape letters today, it's like Uncle Screw Tape would be like uh, planning out how the tweets are going to fit the algorithm just to really put you in a horrible spiritual space for that day. It's like, well, let's make sure we throw in a little politics over here. Uh, Let's put some obnoxious people who don't know what they're talking about and make sure they say something really obnoxious. Let's throw in some videos of, you know, racial violence and, uh, you know, and and some horrible in th- some horrible things to just really make him have anxiety and fear as he's starting out his day this would be a great thing for us to do and it seriously is like this waking kind of a nightmare because you're sitting there looking and all of a sudden after 30 minutes, you you sit there and see everything that's wrong politically, everything that's, that's wrong with society and with culture. The whole world is going to hell in a handbasket and there's nothing any of us can do about it. And then it's like, now, Daniel, let's get ready for our sermon. All right, good good times. But as you can imagine, I, as because I'm saying it right now, I start to see some parallels like, this is a similar kind of, a, he doesn't have a smartphone and Twitter, but he has a vision from God that, sh, that pulls back the curtain and shows him the reality of the world that he's in. And it's not really a pretty picture. There are powers that he can't control. There are uh, warring factions and empires that he's kind of caught up in the middle of and in the midst of that he ha, has no no say over. He, he starts to have these visions of what's going to happen to his people, the people of God. And it doesn't look good. It doesn't look promising. And if we really started to have similar visions like this, if we, if we could have a vision from God that would show us, you know, what the next couple hundred years in America is going to be like and what our descendants are going to go through, our children and our grandchildren our great-grandchildren. It might start to give us some context for why Daniel is so appalled and disgusted at this vision that he receives. It made me think of a, of a couple of things. One is a, an image that I saw when I was kind of studying this week. Um, so this is actually a little sketch that Rembrandt, Uh, did about Daniel chapter eight. And if you search for this image, you'll find there's some nice completed paintings on it that don't look a lot like this. They're a lot more sentimental. They're actually painted by some of Rembrandt's students. They, They were going through his notebooks. They saw this one and they used it as a study to try to finish some of these things out. And it's like you know the little baby angel and the sweet young teenager and it's like there's actually a river with a you know a goat and a ram and and it just looks more you know precious i guess uh, for for lack of a better word but i like this one because i feel i feel like this captures like this existential dread that daniel's feeling because instead of it being like just laid out really clearly it's just this black blob of like Fear. It reminded me of like uh, the never-ending story. <laughs> I'm going to go from Rembrandt to the never-ending story. That's fun. Um, but like it reminded me of the never-ending story. If you ever saw that when I was a kid, I loved that movie and it's the nothing. You know, the the bad guy and it's the nothing who's kind of like pursuing the main character throughout the story and consuming everything, which I thinks kind of a good image for what a kid uh, thinks about the, you know, a kid doesn't have the experience with everything in the world. So for them, it's just there are these forces of evil out there that are, that are making them afraid. And I think that's a similar kind of thing with Daniel. He's not able to comprehend all of this evil, all of these horrible things that he's seeing and witnessing in this vision. And it's causing him to be afraid. It's causing him to be terrified. And I think it's a good image and metaphor for for what we're facing in our day. And I think an example of somebody who who said this really well, who who did a great job of describing this sort of existential fear, was Albert Camus. I don't know that he had the, the best answers in the end, but he said this. He said, man stands face to face with the irrational fear. He feels within him his longing for happiness and reason. The absurd is born of the confrontation between human need and the unreasonable silence of the world. For Camus, he, said he looked at the world around him and saw the chaos and the madness, and he said there can't be any meaning in all of this, and yet we have this desire for happiness and meaning, and so it must be some divine joke he wouldn't necessarily say divine joke, but it must be some kind of cosmic joke. And so for him, the answer was like, well, we can either just, the only thing we could possibly do is either just kill ourselves or just laugh about everything because there's no meaning or hope when we look at the world around us. And yet we have this desire to make meaning and to find hope and to find peace. But what the scripture is gonna bring to bear on us and the scripture is gonna make very clear is that in a world that seems hopeless, in a world where if we look at the the politics around us and the culture wars around us and the fact that we live a short time and die and the fact that there are horrible things that each and every one of us are confronted with emotionally, spiritually, physically in a sinful fallen world, when we look at that, unless we have Jesus, Camus is right. Unless we have the hope of the gospel, Camus is right. And one of the things that we see in Daniel, I'm going to show show this little point up here. So one one of the things we see in Daniel is is we see, that the power and wisdom of the world are nothing compared to the power and wisdom of God. And the important part of this is he stoops into the chaos to comfort his frail and fearful people. This is where our hope lies, in the incarnation, in the fact that God, who is all powerful, whose power is greater than all the powers around us, whose knowledge and wisdom are greater than all the knowledge and wisdom around us, has humbled himself to take on human flesh, to enter into that frailty and fear, to seek and save the law so that those who believe in him know that 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 desire for hope and meaning has an answer in Jesus. And so I wanna talk just a a little bit about this passage specifically. So so we're looking at uh, Daniel who, as we saw last week, this is kind of going uh, not chronologically in the book. So Daniel um, goes through the lion's den, and then we go kind of back in time a little as we see some of these visions that Daniel starts to hear to see. And this is the second one of these night visions that he's going to have. And this is also the time where Daniel is going to switch back to Hebrew. So his language is going to go back. And This is actually a really pretty straightforward prophecy. Um, He he actually is given the interpretation pretty clearly in the second half of this. So much so that me and Michael both kind of came up with our things on our own, and Michael was like, "Hey, this is what I think it is," and we were like, "Right on." So that should tell you right there. If we're agreeing on everything, then uh, it's it's pretty easy and straightforward. So. So it's pretty uh, pretty straightforward prophecy, and so the reason so so the reason why I think that's important to understand is because there's a lot of people who because the it is kind of straightforward, and it's so if it's written a couple hundred years before, so uh, profoundly true that a lot of modern scholars say, well, this is actually written by a different person. It's not written by Daniel. It's written in the future, after a lot of these events have happened, because there's no way Daniel could have known all this stuff happened. Plus, he switches from Aramaic back to Hebrew, and it's not as beautiful and wonderful and poetic of language. The thing that I want to push back on that a little bit is to say, I don't think it's so much that the author changed, it's, it's the audience changed. He's not necessarily writing for... Um, the the you know for for uh, the 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 Assyrian population, he's not necessarily writing for the Babylonian population. He's really trying to write. I believe, for the people who were going to be reading this during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes several hundred years later. So he knows that the people who are going to need this are the Hebrews who are back in Israel, the people who are back there waiting to hear it several hundred years down the road. And so his intention and in what he's writing is really going to change. He's wanted to bring those people specifically some encouragement And some hope. And so to me, it's more the audience has changed more so than the author has changed. I wanna show you quickly a little map of of where we're talking about here. So again, uh, Daniel is probably during the the time of this vision over in Babylon, but he's gonna be taken over to Susa, which is gonna be the, the capital of the Persian empire that's gonna be coming. And so he's taken for this vision over here to this canal and he sees this uh, this spiritual drama play out before him over here. You see the, the Persian Gulf here? So we can kind of get a little context of where this is. If you wanna know where Israel is, you just gotta keep going to the left over there. Um, so this is where a lot of this stuff is playing out. Remember, most of the drama and the story of all this stuff is not gonna be taking place in Israel, but it's gonna be read by the people of Israel Um, after Daniel. And so it's going to be bringing hope and bringing a future to them. And a lot of the action that we're seeing him discuss and talk about is from them as well. I appreciate Chris reading that. I want to read another little piece that's not actually from scripture. This is actually from the Apocrypha, uh, the Old Testament Apocrypha, from the book of Maccabees. Okay, so and let's bring up this second slide here because I think that this may be helpful for us. This next slide, um, a little timeline here. Okay, so this will just break it down for us as we're just going to walk through the background pretty quickly before we get into some of more uh, meat of what Daniel's trying to get across to us today. So if we're just looking at, you know, how is this matching up? What's this looking like? So we have uh, the ramp. So we have this ram who's making war, and, and uh, that's Medo-Persia. So that's kind of two, there's two horns there. One of them's more powerful, one of them's less powerful. This is kind of conglomeration of two empires that existed at the time. Uh, and th- these are the people who, uh, who Daniel's kind of working for at the time, um, or he's going to be working for. And then we have the, uh, the two horns, who are the two kings there. The higher horn is Persia. And after this, we have the goat come in and drive off the uh, the Persian ram. And the goat is going to be with this conspicuous horn, so this more powerful, strong horn, is going to be Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great is going to come uh, from Greece. He's going to come over into uh, this, uh, this area. He's going to conquer the entire world. The entire known world is going to come under contro- the control of Alexander the Great. But if you know anything about this history, he's not very good at consolidating his power. And so Alexander the Great is going to die. The kingdom that he establishes is going to break up into and be divided into four different kingdoms. And it's going to be given over to four of his different generals. He didn't have any children, uh, at least that we know about. And so it's given over to four different generals who are going to take over and rule. Those four horns or the four generals. This little horn is going to rise up. That's going to be Antiochus Epiphanes, he's the one who's going to rule over the area that is Egypt and Israel and Syria. So he's going to be ruling over this area. And he's this 2,300 days of desecration that he's talking about. That's a three and a half year period. And that three-and-a-half-year period, that's going to get us to what I want to read right now, and it's what this passage is really talking about, okay? So this three-and-a-half-year period is this time where this little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, is going to wage war against God and the people of God for three-and-a-half years. And that's actually recorded in this apocryphal book of 1 Maccabees. So really quickly on the Apocrypha. Um, A lot of you may be familiar with New Testament Apocryphal books like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary. This is not that kind of Apocrypha, okay? So we're not talking about like heretical, blasphemous type stuff. The Old Testament Apocrypha is basically things that some Protestant denominations and the Catholic Church still include in their canon of Scripture, but Protestants, for the majority, for the most part, including us, would see these as not necessarily part of the canon of Scripture, but can still shed some light on some things historically. And so Maccabees is just a historical account written in a similar type of style to the way the rest of the Old Testament is written. Wasn't included in the canon of Scripture after the Protestant Reformation. But again, there's some good historical information that's there, and it talks specifically about what happens in this instance in non-prophetic language. Let me read this for you here. So this is, if you ever want to look it up on your own, in 1 Maccabees chapter 1, starting in verse 20, it says, After Antiochus had defeated Egypt in the 143rd year, he returned and went up against Israel and against Jerusalem with a strong force. He insolently entered the sanctuary and took away the altar, the lampstand, the light, and the utensils. The offering table, the cups and the bowls and the golden censers and the curtain, the cornices, the golden ornament on the facade of the temple, and he stripped it all off. He took away the silver and the gold and the precious vessels. He took all the hidden treasures he could find. Taking this, he went back to his own country and shed much blood and spoke with great arrogance. And there was mourning throughout all of Israel. And the rulers and the elders groaned. Young women and men languished, and the beauty of the women faded Every bridegroom took up lamentation while the bride sitting in her chamber mourned. Two years later, the king sent the Maizan commander to the cities of Judah and he came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He spoke deceitfully to them. We Should be seeing some parallels to our passage. He speaks deceitfully to them in peaceful terms and they believed him. Then they attacked the city suddenly in great onslaught and destroyed many of the people in Israel. He plundered the city, set fire to it, demolished it. They took captive the women, the children, seized the animals, and they built up in the city of David a high, strong wall and strong towers, and it became their citadel. And they installed a sinful race, transgressors of the law, who fortified themselves inside it. The citadel became an ambush against the sanctuary and a wicked adversary to Israel. And the king wrote to his whole kingdom, that all should be one people to abandon their particular customs, the gent- and all the Gentiles conformed to the command of the king, and many Israelites delighted in his religion, and they sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. And the king sent letters to the messengers to Jerusalem and to the cities of Judah, ordering them to follow the customs foreign to their land." to prohibit burnt offerings and sacrifices in the sanctuary, to profane the Sabbaths and the feast days, to desecrate the sanctuary, to desecrate the sacred ministers, to build pagan altars and temples, to shrines and sacrifice swine and unclean animals, to leave their sons uncircumcised and defile themselves with every kind of impurity and abomination so that they might forget the law and change all its ordinances." And so this is the kind of vision that Daniel is looking into and seeing, okay? I read this in a little bit of length because I think it's important for us to understand and establish, again, what we have in Daniel is sort of a poetic representation of what we're going to later see play out very clearly and plainly in the real world with Antiochus Epiphanes in Israel. And actually, if you want to read the rest of the story, it's pretty interesting. It ends up launching a rebellion where the, the uh, Jewish leader, Judas Maccabees, who the book is named after, leads a revolt against uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and they actually win the right to continue worshiping how they want to worship. And this is where the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah comes from. Um, but the, the part that Daniel sees is this rising up of Antiochus Epiphanes. And the reason he puts it in this apocalyptic language is, is important why didn't he just write the vision like we read in Maccabees? What's the difference? There's a reason. There's times in scripture where something is written historically and there are times in scripture where something is written uh, as a prophecy and as as uh, apocalyptic almost like this. And so the reason for that, uh, I would contend, is that because, because it does not only point to those immediate historical events, but it's supposed to point both to the people who were hearing it at Daniel's time and forward to us as well, okay? So that's a key for us to understand. So one of the things that we're gonna see is we're gonna see somebody like John in the New Testament who's gonna draw heavily on Daniel when he's writing uh, the book of Revelation, when he's writing the Revelation. We're gonna see him draw heavily on on the language and the imagery and the symbolism of Daniel and apply a lot of the things from it to his own day and then continue to extend that and pointing to a future persecution of the church and return of Christ. And so we're gonna see him continue to do those things and that's the reason why we can take some of these ideas and apply them to our lives now and also look forward with hope and anticipation to the future. And so as I was looking through Daniel 8, I really start to see a couple of themes start to appear within this chapter. And then also a a response of Daniel and an intervention of God. Okay, so I want us to look at a couple of different themes and then Daniel's response and God's intervention. Okay, so the first theme that I think we really start to see developing is this theme of power. And what we're going to see in this passage is that the power of the world is nothing compared to the power of God. So as we talk about this kind of hopelessness and anxiety, and if people have the time to sort of be confronted with a world of violence and chaos, one of the responses that people make is to try to grasp power, to try to to grasp control, to be strong. I always remember if they're... There's this uh, a fight that's been going on for for years that uh, middle school boys love to talk about, adults too, adult boys as well, which is like, what's the first thing you're gonna do if there's a zombie apocalypse, you know? <laughs> and it and normally the conversation goes along the lines of like, well, when that zombie apocalypse happens, I'm gonna have to. And then you decide which weapons you're going to get, you know, and which uh, fortified, you know, location you're going to seal yourself up in so that you you can resist. So basically, it's when the world goes to chaos, how can I make myself strong? How can I have power to fight against these enemies? And I think that that's a natural response that many people make just to the world around them in general. You know, as I see a world of chaos, how can I make myself strong? Can I have enough money? Can I have enough, um, you know, can I attach myself to the right political party? Can I attach myself to the right job to where I can guarantee that the chaos in the world is not going to affect me? often this response to the chaos is to latch onto or grasp after power. We see that uh, power dynamic playing out in verses four through eight as both the per- Media Persian Empire and the Greek Empire fight each other for who's going to be in control, for who's going to have the power. And you can imagine somebody like Daniel saying, well, at first, you know, I can kind of be in good with some of these guys. You know, I'm, a, I'm an official. I'm, you know, I, I'm close to a, an emperor. But then that empire swept away. And then he sees the next empire swept away and king rising against king. And we can look at the world and, and the history of it and see that this is the way of the world. One country rises up, another comes up against it, One country falls, another one rises up behind it. Nations war and wage against one another. And it's only the folly of the current generation, every current generation, to think that this is the way that it's always going to be. And I'm secure because I'm in a secure country. But the reality is that that's never been the case. And we have no promise of that being the case in the future either. And here's the thing that I would also contend as a believer and as a Christian We're not to put our hope and trust in even being in a good and powerful country because we have no promise that that is going to endure. We have no promise that this earthly kingdom will stand. We have only a promise that God's kingdom is eternal and will stand. So what we see in this is that the power of the world is nothing compared to the power of God. So where does this leave us? Well We look at Daniel and we see the same thing in us. We look at the world around us. We see countries at war with one another. We see... Uh, culture changes and culture wars and clashes. And there can be times where you just shake your head and you're like, how am I supposed to make a way forward in this world? What's this world gonna be like for my children and my children's children? And we can have this temptation to be at power or knowledge, whatever it is, to try to insulate ourselves. And yet at the end of the day, the only hope we have is that we serve a God who is more powerful than all the powers in the world. We see him clearly laid out in scripture and we see it laid out with Antiochus Epiphanes. He's actually spiritually gonna have this, this, this power to contend with God. So we see again that veil pulled back and we see that even these earthly struggles have spiritual components with them. So, Antiochus Epiphanes, yes, he's a king, but by his very name, he's meaning he's contending with or trying to establish himself as a godlike figure here on earth. Now, people have enough sense not to claim that anymore, but people don't have enough sense not to still act like that anymore. And so, we have rulers today who are going to set themselves up as above the law, as godlike, as the, the one who can save you if you just do what they want if you just submit to their wisdom and their power. And we see very clearly what ends up playing out with Antiochus Epiphanes, that doesn't happen. He's gonna fall, he's not gonna last, he's not gonna save the people, he's not gonna give them the hope and the peace that his power may try to promise. And this poetic language shows us moving to something that applies across the ages, that there will be people who contend with God, who shake their fist to God and say, no, follow me. I am powerful. I am strong. And it's up to us in every Christian generation to say that our trust is in the Lord. Our hope is in God. It is in no country and no kingdom or no person, but in God and God alone. So when, when we confronted with this grasping for power, we have two responses. We have a bad response to grasp our to try to find our own security, our own hope, and some of these other things, or to cling to Jesus, to grasp at him. We see Daniel grasping at Gabriel in this passage. By extension, he's clinging to God. He goes to Gabriel and says, explain this to me. Help me understand this. He's looking to God as his strength and as his hope. There's this passage in Psalms, Psalm 68, starting in verse 28, it says, Summon your power, O God, the power, God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds. Again, we see that image. Speaking right into Daniel's situation. Rebuke the beast that I see. they dwelling in the reeds. The herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after power, who lust after tribute. Scatter the people who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praise to the Lord. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. That's good news for us, that we have a God whose kingdom is in the sky, saying his kingdom is not of this earth. And we have a God who gives us the power that we need to survive as well. The second thing we see is a response in this passage is this scramble for wisdom, this this striving after wisdom. So we'll we'll end up finding in this passage that the wisdom of the world is nothing compared to the wisdom of God. So another response to the, the craziness and the chaos of the world is to grasp after knowledge. We think, I have to know. I have to know the future Because by knowing, I'll be able to control the future. I need control in my life. I can't trust it to God. I have to know what's gonna happen. We see the tendency of people to wanna know every detail of what's happening in Daniel or what's happening in the book of Revelation. This, I gotta know the knowledge so I can prepare and I can be in control. We we have this desire to, to know. And yet we see very clearly And for specific reasons, both in Daniel and in Revelation, anytime we have these apocryphal-type writings or these prophetic-type writings, we see God telling people, don't tell them all the stuff. Don't give them all the vision. Don't give them all—because there is this element where God is wanting to give us enough for a certain reason to be encouraged, to see behind the veil a little, to know that he is working and that he is in control— but he's not wanting us to have this knowledge that will keep us from trusting in him. His goal is not necessarily the same as our goal. He wants us to look to Jesus. He wants us to trust in God. If he laid out every single detail, every single thing, there would be no, re- there would be no need for trust anymore. And so to call us to trust in him, he's not gonna give us every single detail of every single thing he's going to give us what we need there's plenty of false knowledge that illustrated in uh, chapter 8 and 23 he says uh, the latter end of their kingdom when the transgressors have a king bold countenance understands riddles shall arise his power will be great and not shall come with fearful destruction, succeed in what he does destroy the mighty men and people who are the saints and by his Running, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. In his own mind, he'll become great. And this definitely points to that immediate context with Antiochus Epiphanes. We saw him doing this, deceiving people, leading people astray. But this points to our own our own time today. There are there's tons of fake knowledge out there. There's all kinds of fake philosophy and fake wisdom that you can lie to. There's plenty of people who will tell the full end into the story if you just pay them a certain amount or follow them and give them your allegiance. Yet God's hope is for us to trust in him, to find our knowledge in him. He said, it's not the knowledge of the details of the future, it's knowledge that you need. It's know and understand me. We see in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Starting in verse 18, he says, Paul says, "'Let no one deceive himself. "'If anyone thinks that he is wise in this age, "'let him become a fool, that he may become wise. "'For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. "'For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness.'" And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They're futile. "'So let no one boast in men.'" For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the, the world or life or death, or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So we're not deceived by the false wisdom of the world, but instead find true wisdom and true knowledge in God. False response, false knowledge is seeking after the wisdom and the riddles of the world. The world is full of false wisdom and full of riddles that we could chase after and spend a life chasing after. And it's seeking that knowledge to control, to control the future, to control others. Whereas the true knowledge is free and given in abundance from God in grace and mercy. And it's to know God and to know his word and to know his plan. It doesn't cost us anything. It's freely given to us and it will change our lives. The final thing we see in this, this passage, we see human frailty and fear, they're nothing when compared uh, when God stoops to comfort his people. We see Daniel as kind of a stand-in for us in a lot of ways in this passage, as, a, as just a man who is afraid, who's sick over this vision that he sees, who can't, can't get peace. He's appalled by the vision, and, and I hope we can see a little bit more why. Maybe just a cursory, quick reading, we're like, I don't really understand why he's so disgusted and appalled by this vision, but we understand he's literally seeing his people suffering, deceived, led astray, worshiping false gods, the temple being desecrated, descendants of, of the people he knows, suffering and dying. It starts to make a little bit more sense. And he starts to think there's there's probably nothing he can even do to bring an end to this. And it may bring this frustration in him to have this knowledge and not be able to use it in any kind of way to stop these things. And so he has this this fear, this fear of the future, this fear of the world that he's he's found himself in. We may look out at the world today and think, well, the world could never have been worse. Well, Daniel was feeling the exact same way in his day. We look at the world around us and we see a world full of sin as a result of the fall, as a result of humanity's disobedience and lack of trust in God and doing things their own way and sinning and rebelling against him. And we still see that today. The, the, the particulars may have changed, but the spirit behind it is the exact same. To doubt God and to go our own way in pride, to, clas- to grasp after power and knowledge for ourselves apart from him that is not true power and is not true knowledge. And it plays out by wreaking havoc in our lives and in the lives of people all around us every single day. We see it in poverty, we see it in violence, we see it in disease, we see it in death. We see it in all the things that bring us pain and despair, all the things that could make life meaningless and unbearable, if it wasn't for the hope that's given to us in Christ. Nothing demonstrates the the beauty of the God who stoops into this chaos like the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that God is not just standing above it in power, looking to judge us, for our sins and just content to let us sit in the consequences of our sinful lives, but instead enters into humanity, enters into creation himself, experiences the fear, experiences the frailty of a physical body so that he can die on the cross, something that he didn't deserve, so that we could have life, so that we could have peace, so that we could have the true knowledge of God, so that we could have true power, not of our own, but of the God of the universe who spoke the world into being. That is good news for us. We see in 1 Corinthians, just one page back in my Bible, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God of God is this image of the cross. It flies in the face of all human wisdom. How would God dying on a cross be the power that each and every one of us needs? Because it brings power to his people. It topples the mightiest and the most powerful nation. It endures when all of those are gone. Cling to Jesus, cling to his cross. Romans chapter eight. looking at verse 38 38 and 39 it says for i am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depths nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of god in christ jesus our lord that is power that is power there's nothing else in the in the universe that can make that claim there is nothing neither No death, no disease, no pain, no powerful person, no power in the world. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And it's what we need. We go back to to Camus saying, there's this joke because we've been created for meaning and and this search for joy, and yet there's none of it in the world. And there's none of it in the world because he's not looking high enough. It's in God, and God alone, the one who made the world. And so in spite of our sin, in spite of the, the, the madness and the chaos we've brought into the world, he still fills us with life and joy and peace in him. And it's his power that will hold on to us and refuses to let us be separated from his love. Not our power, no power in this world, but the power of God in Christ. So we see the end of all this. Daniel, in the last couple of verses, he's sick and appalled, like we said, we saw all the things that he saw. We might have that same kind of sickness. We might have that same kind of thing, and yet we see someone who is, is clinging to God. And so the reason I think that's important is because nobody's expecting you to be confronted with everything in the world and just put on a fake smiley face and say, it's fine because I've got God. That's not what anybody's asking. The world is a brutal place. There's horrible things that you're going to face in your life. There's going to be real emotions that you're going to feel in the midst of that. There's going to be questions. There's going to be, uh, there's going to be doubts. There's going to be frustrations. There's going to be all of those things. And yet the challenge for us is in the midst of all that chaos, when we can't sleep, when we're sick to our stomach, when we're appalled at the world around us, don't let our focus be on those things for long, but instead turn our eyes to Jesus. Turn our eyes to the plan that God has in us. Christ. Look to him. Don't be like Camus says and just say, what is the point? What's the point of all this? The point is Jesus. He's giving, he's waiting. He's giving people time to repent and to turn to him. He's making all these horrible and sad things come undone because of his kingdom in the world. We can be a part of that. One of the most beautiful ways I think uh, it's been demonstrated before or it's been talked about before Is in the Belgic Confession of Faith, one of, the, one of the oldest Protestant confessions. And uh, it says this, it's, uh, it's got this Article 17 on the recovery of fallen man. He says, we believe that our most gracious God in his admirable wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had thus thrown himself into temporal and eternal death and made himself wholly miserable, was pleased to sink and comfort him when he trembling fled from his presence, promising that he would give his son, who should be made of a woman, to bruise the head of the serpent and make him happy. He's making us happy in God, giving us life in God. When we throw everything away, he came and sought us out to give us life, to give us joy, to give us happiness. I want to close with this story of this uh, this this countercultural vision of God's kingdom and a different kind of happiness being played out, there was a there was a French pastor named Andre Andre Trocmé, who was a pastor in a town called La Chambon during World War II in France, and it was in this particular high mountainous region where a few Protestants had kind of hung out for several hundred years and resisted being driven from the country. If you know anything about uh, French history, violent conflict between Catholics and Protestants. And so some of the Huguenots had settled up in these mountains because it was hard to get to and not really worth anybody's time. So during World War II, actually 10 years leading up to World War II, Trogman was the pastor in this area. And during World War II, they made a decision. They were all. Uh, it was the Vicky government uh, during this time, who was uh, the basically the French government that was working with the with Hitler and with the Nazis, and they were. Uh, so this group of Protestants were working against them, and they were doing whatever they could, uh, not just to to rescue, to, but to provide a different vision of life for between three and five thousand. Jewish children who had escaped um, to this region to hide during the height of the Holocaust. And so these Protestants who weren't, you know, not even the same religious beliefs as all these children, but just because they had a different view of reality, a different view of the world, they risked their lives, many of them being killed and executed and sent to concentration camps themselves because they were hiding these kids in the woods, they were hiding them in different homes, all throughout this sort of isolated region. And so it was almost kind of their own little version of, a, of an underground railroad where they would escape them up into these mountains and then keep them there for a little while until it was safe and then it get, let them escape over into to other parts of the world where it would be safe. And so they would hide thousands of children at a time up there, again, many of them even dying themselves. And later... When he was asked a little bit and he was given, you know, the ability to try to write and talk about this time, he said this. I want to pull this up on the screen for you for a second. He said, over and against the senseless modern myths invented by humans to justify their superiority complexes, which put the human race in competition with the creator himself, there is the myth of God's goodness Notice that myth is in quotations because he's saying basically the world is trying to tell one story, and yet there's this persistent story of the God of goodness who has chosen people to prepare a kingdom of justice, truth, and love on earth. This myth dies hard, and it always comes back throughout history in different forms, especially following massacres where we have outdone ourselves in criminality. He said, but one must go. Faster, higher, farther. One must produce more or destroy more, no matter what the cost. Destroy what? Unjust structures? No one knows how. Truly the expectation of the kingdom of God is a mysterious guide of history. Economic factors and technological discoveries are merely used by human hope to build a better future. But where does this hope come from if God did not teach it to us? When When one must choose between nothingness and the kingdom, how can we choose? anything but the kingdom. And so we see here this different vision, this different story, this idea that God is establishing a kingdom of justice and peace in the world. He's telling a better story that we're a part of. And while the world is establishing itself and striving in many different ways to to promote its own version of hope, in its own version of peace, and its own power, and its own knowledge, there's this hole inside of us that can only be filled by Jesus, and it's this vision that we long for that can only be established in His kingdom. And what the, the beautiful thing about Andrew Trogman is, that you see it play out in his life. He had been kind of isolated into a small church with only a few people, and yet when the opportunity arose he was able to tell a better story than the one that was being told all around him because of the beauty of Christ in his heart and the power of God working through him. We find ourselves in situations that may not be fighting against Nazis, but there's gonna be difficulties in the world all around us. We have an opportunity to either believe the wisdom of the world, to believe the lies of the story that this world wants to tell, that our culture wants to tell, or to tell a better story to tell the story of God's kingdom, of his love and his justice and mercy. So just to apply these things at the very end, just very briefly, just three brief things for us. Trust in the power of God. There's no power on earth that's gonna be able to to establish itself or conquer it. There's no power in the world that can separate us from his love if we have his power. Seek the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is found in his word. The wisdom of God is, is taught to our hearts through prayer and through one another as we study God's word together, as we fellowship with one another. And finally, cling to Jesus. This image of, of Gabriel ministering to Daniel in this passage. Jesus wants to minister to us in the same way. In the midst of our despair, in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of those those dreams that we wake up in the middle of the night, the anxiety, the fear, Jesus wants to be there to walk beside us in the midst of it, to help us to tell a better story with our lives, to give us that power that we don't have on our own. So cling to him more than anything else. Cling to Jesus. Each and every week, one of the ways that we remind ourselves to cling to Jesus is by participating in uh, the Lord's Supper, by participating in communion. And so what we do is we have these stations set up around the room, and what Jesus has told us to do is to, to break bread, uh, symbolic of his body that was broken for us, and dip it into this juice, which is symbolic of the blood that he shed for us on the cross. And we do this in remembrance of him. And so we want to encourage you who are our partners or who are believers in Jesus Christ to participate in that, to gather together as, as families, if you don't have a family together with, but you would like to hop in with a group of people, our people are more than willing to pray with you, to talk with you about what this means. If you don't understand what the gospel of Jesus is and you've never made a decision to follow him, then, then talk to somebody. Grab myself or grab one of the other pastors or, you know, talk to somebody about what the gospel is and, and how you can have hope in Jesus as well. That's so what we're going to do is we're going to take a time in, in just a moment Uh, and right where you're going to stand and come down the aisles to these different stations, two in the front, two in the back, and we're going to participate in this time of communion together. So let me pray, and then we'll go and do that. God, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to cling to you. Lord, the world can be a very scary place. People vying for power, people vying for control, Most of all, there are lies that are vying for our hearts. But Lord, we can have the confidence in knowing that you are in control, that you are strong, and that you are good. So, Lord, as we take this time together, help us remember the sacrifice that you made for us on the cross. Help us to pursue you and cling to you each and every day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.